Well, we can pretty much pray and go home now as far as I'm concerned, but we're going to keep going. Thank you. We are in the Gospel of Mark this spring semester, and perhaps by now you have perceived there is a rolling refrain that we've said week on week, and it goes like this. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. If you approach a bridge and you're not quite sure it's going to get you to the other side, if you will spend the necessary time, perhaps be accompanied by an expert, and you look at the superstructure of the bridge, you see the strength, you see others going across it. The more you examine the object of your faith, the more your faith grows. And the same is true with our Jesus. Now, what if it was up to you to answer every question fundamentally and foundationally, that people have about this Jesus. What if you are a Galilean fisherman sitting in Rome? How are you going to answer the question that, that people have about this alleged Messiah, this anointed one? Is he really the hope of the world? Is he really Messiah? Peter, writing through Mark, has one very simple answer, and it goes like this. Jesus is... He is. He is. Now, I want you to imagine this. Peter is sitting in Rome with Mark, writing from Rome to Romans, a very pragmatic, practical people, to show them who really is king. How does life really work? And Peter turns to Mark and he says, Dudeon. That's Greek for dude. No, not really. No. He says, I got to tell you, the longest day ever. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the longest day. For some of you of a certain age, you might think of the 1962 World War II movie about the invasion of Normandy and that longest day that is told from both perspectives of the Allies and of the German war machine. I'm not talking about that. If you really wanted to show and to demonstrate that Jesus is, he is the hope of the world. He is the means by which man can have right standing before a holy and unapproachable God. He is, he is, he is. If you're Peter, you want to encapsulate the longest day in one giant burst and batch of truth. Now, it's a lot, so stick with me. This morning we're in Mark chapter 6, and in your Bibles it's 56 verses. And we're going to cover it all because it's the longest day to demonstrate that Jesus is. Now, we're going to walk through it fairly efficiently. But I want you to get all of this at once, to be reminded, to be encouraged that Jesus is. Because the more you examine the object of your faith, the more your faith grows. Now, we've made it all the way through chapter 5 where we've been studying and seeing that the king has come. His kingdom is here. What does it look like? It's not what they expected. They were looking for some military campaign to drive out the invading Romans. But no, Jesus says, I have planted this kingdom in burgeoning souls all over Palestine, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow. I've grabbed the border and the boundary of the future, and I've dragged it back into the present age. And so if you will receive this kingdom, if you will hear this gospel, you will be from the future living in the present. And that's very good news. So how does Peter want Mark to tell these Romans that Jesus is? Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. 
Very quick backstory. Remember that Jesus has been ministering up in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Incredible things. He went over to the eastern shore and he healed crazy Gary from a legion of demons. Remember Gary, the Gerasene Gary? He, he went to Capernaum and he healed a woman who'd been struggling for 12 years with a horrific, unclean affliction. He raised a dead girl back to life. And so his popularity, his esteem, his notoriety, his fame was increasing exponentially, but Jesus is about to throw a big bucket of cold water on his disciples. They're in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. Now they're going to make a journey about 20 miles west-southwest to his hometown of Nazareth. It's just in the sticks. It's, it's up in the hills. You really can't even see the water from there. It is Nazareth. And so Jesus takes his disciples back to Nazareth. Let's see how this goes. And on the Sabbath... He began to teach in the synagogue. So he's got at least enough notoriety and enough respect and esteem that he can stand up in the synagogue in Nazareth and begin to expound on Torah. That's interesting. In the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? This is pretty impressive. This guy has got some chops, but, but we know him. What in the world? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Nobody's arguing that he's doing incredible things. Nobody's arguing that he's teaching incredibly wise things. They, they all get that, but, but it's Jesus. I mean, we know you. I mean, we, what do you, who do you think you are? Oh, and I want you to hear what's going to be the primary inhibitor of their faith. Their value of their experience historically, giving them the illusion of control. Their experience prevents them from surrendering control unto actual belief. We've all been there. Watch what happens. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, we miss some of this in our English. That's a derogatory expression. The carpenter, the craftsman, the mason, the, 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 the knuckle dragon dude with calluses on his hands. He's the son of Mary. That's not what it seems. That's a derogatory insult. Even if you were the child of a widow, you still were referred to by your father's name. The rumors still persisted that Jesus, well, he was born out of wedlock and it was an unclean union there. And so this is a slam. Hey, who does he think he is? We know him. We know where he came from. We saw him running around. Who does this little Jesus think he is? Come to think of it, never saw him do much wrong, but still, who does he think he is teaching these things and healing? He's going he's gonna to get us noticed. He's going to get us in trouble. What in the world? He's not the carpenter's son, uh, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So Jesus has at least that we know of four biological half-brothers. He has two biological half-sisters. They're not named here because they're probably already married, but they're there in synagogue. And are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. The word scandalizon. That's where we get our word for scandal. This is a scandal. Here's this guy come back thinking he's Mr. Big Britches telling us and healing people from their diseases. Huh, we'll have none of that around here, thank you very much. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Now, we don't know why Jesus went back to Nazareth. I think it was a teaching opportunity for his disciples. We know that at least on two occasions, his kinfolk and his family went to Capernaum to say, now, enough of this. Come back home where we can put our thumb on you. 
And Jesus says, yeah, prophet is respected and revered and esteemed everywhere he goes, but not in his own hometown. And tragically, not even in his household. Now, this is James, incidentally, the half-brother of Jesus, who goes on to write the epistle to James. James, nicknamed Old Camel Knees, who presides over the church in Jerusalem. James, to whom Jesus appears directly after his resurrection, Paul tells us in Corinthians 15. James, who was thrown off of the temple and beaten to death with garden tools. This is James. But at this juncture, he's not a believer. Jude, or Judas, not that Judas, his half-brother Judas, who writes the epistle to Jude, who identifies himself as the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. These are his half-brothers that will become apostles, that will become disciples, and will be sent out and will write about him. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, that's amazing. It's not that their lack of belief, oh, he just kind of, he just didn't have any power. No, but it is instructive. Jesus went to do signs and wonders where there were people of faith who were seeking him. There just weren't that many people of faith that were seeking him. Now, it's not because he ran out of juice. He still, of course, heals people. He still, of course, does incredible deeds there, but it's a very dark, disbelieving place. I don't know what you think about when you think about the worst things you've ever done in your life. We're going to pass the microphone and have a time of testimony. You're just going to get to share it. No, 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 we're not really. Whatever you think it is, I can promise you, you're probably wrong. The worst thing about you ever has been those times and those seasons of disbelief. The things that you've done, yes, those are But even more profound and foundational than that is our tendency to disbelieve. But Peter wants to remind us through Mark's gospel that Jesus is, watch what happens here. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now that's astonishing. He thalazo. This word thalazo, to marvel, it's only said of Jesus twice in the entirety of the New Testament. A lot of people marvel at Jesus, but Jesus doesn't marvel all that often. He marvels here in Nazareth at their unbelief. He says, you guys are marvelous can't believe you. The idea is, are you kidding me? You're hearing what I'm saying. It jives with Torah. You're seeing what I'm doing. You should be connecting the dots. You should be connecting the dots, but are you, are you kidding me? Are you serious? He marveled at them. The only other time this word is used by Jesus or of Jesus is in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus encounters a Gentile Roman centurion who says, I know that I've got authority to do this and this, but when you say something, Everything obeys you. And Jesus goes, are you kidding me? He marveled at the Roman Gentile centurion. So let me just be very direct. Jesus thinks you're marvelous. Do you know why? Does he marvel at your unbelief? Come on, you've said in church your whole life, you know the stories, you've, you've seen the people. Or does he marvel at your belief despite all the other reasons for you to not? You believe and Jesus goes, that's awesome. I love that. Jesus does think you're marvelous. The question is, how come? Well, verse six, and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. So up in the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee, there's some villages around there. Jesus continues to take his disciples around to show them how it's going to be. Look, I'm not going to be with you forever. You're going to go on mission. Remember back in Mark chapter 3, he calls the disciples for three purposes. One, to be with him. Two, to proclaim the kingdom. Three, to drive out demons. All right, boys, 
it's go time. It's not always going to be like it was in Capernaum, where the crowds are there, and they're just falling all over us, and I'm just doing things, and people are, no, no, sometimes it's going to be like Nazareth. And so that's where he launches them from, is around the northwest corner where there's disbelief. He sends out his disciples on the first short-term mission trip. Here we go, verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. That's a good practice, a witness, an an accomplice, so that there is encouragement, so that there is uh, accountability, all those kinds of things. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They didn't have it. He gave it to them. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. So is this a model for how we should do short-term mission trips? Everybody gets a stick. Go get them. No. This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive because Jesus is trying to make a point. They are to rely on him and him alone. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics... You're going to have to trust the people with whom you stay. You don't get to take a bunch of extra luggage and provisions. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And there's a lot going on here. Is this a prescription for a short-term mission trip? No, it's a description. But we do glean some principles When missionaries come through and they visit our church that we have sent them out, we want to show them good hospitality. It also shows us how we are to be on mission. There's this great old missions principle where Jesus leads, I'll follow. What my hosts serve, I'll swallow. (laughs) That's easier in Italy than it is in Sierra Leone, West Africa. I can promise you. But that's the jam. Where Jesus leads, I'll follow. What they serve me, I'll swallow. And so this is what we see. Now he says, if they don't receive you, you shake the dust from your feet and move on. There's some urgency here. Guys, we have no time to mess around. Now the rabbis and the priests and the Levites, when they had to travel outside of Israel, when they returned to Israel, this is what they would do. They would shake the dust from their feet as if to say, get that pagan foreign soil off of me. I am back in the land of blessing. And Jesus tells his disciples, if they don't receive you, you shake the dust off of you. Whoa, that doesn't sound as evocative to us as it should. That is telling them, this is the message of true Israel. And if you won't have it, this is the the confines of the covenant blessing that God is offering. And if you won't have it, I'm so sorry, I'm out of time, I've got to move on. Here, listen, see. Here, listen, see. And if you won't, I got to go. Shake, 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 and move on. There was no dividing line. You couldn't be ambivalent about Jesus or his message. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, that they should rethink their thinking, that they should turn. They're offering the kingdom, but Mark is not offering you and me the kingdom. He's offering you and me the gospel by showing the offer of the kingdom and how it was rejected. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now then, we have this, again, a Mark sandwich. Mark likes to write in sandwiches. We talked about this last week. When you describe a sandwich, you describe the sandwich by the thing in the middle. You don't describe a sandwich by the bread. You describe it by the protein and the stuff inside, the ham and the cheese or whatever it might be. We have a marked sandwich. We hear what Jesus is doing up in the northwest of the Galilee near Nazareth. And then we have this long interlude in the interest of time because Mark and Peter want you to have this as a story. I'm just going to tell you the story. 
from about verses 14 down through 29, we have this integral bit about John the Baptist. Now we think this is also why Jesus dispatches the 12 disciples because he knows what's happened to John the Baptist and he needs and he wants time to grieve. They don't know, he knows. And so he sends them out. Meanwhile, down in the southeast, we hear about this guy named Herod. Now here's the problem with our New Testament. Sometimes it's not particularly helpful. There was Herod the Great, He lived and he built all kinds of projects in Israel, but he died in 4 BC and he had tons and tons of children, many half-brothers, and several of them, well, he named them Herod. Way to go, Herod the Great, naming all your kids Herod. It's like George Foreman named 11 of his sons George. They're all named George. And so there's some gross, weird things happening. One of the Herods is a guy named Herod Antipas. Herod calls himself a king, but he's not a king. He's a tetrarch, which means he has a fourth of his father's kingdom. Now, being a tetrarch is cool and all, but it ain't king. Rome won't let him be called king, but he really, really wants to be a king. Now, Herod Antipas is married to some Arabian king's daughter. This guy, Aristobulus IV, he's married to his daughter. But she kind of, well, she runs her purpose and he's done with her. So he just gets rid of her and he goes, ooh, I like my brother Philip's daughter. And so she divorces sort of kind of weird her husband, Philip, but not the other Philip, because there's two Philips as well. I mean, come on. So this Herod Antipas marries this woman named Herodias, because of course that's her name, Herodias. And she has a daughter from Philip named Salome. So King Herod Antipas throws a big, huge birthday party, and he invites all the men of nobility and all the dignitaries and all the military commanders. <laughs> How good was the military of Israel at this point? They're under occupation by the Romans. It's it's like you're a British police officer. Stop! Or I'll say stop again. You got no power. You got no weapons. You have nothing. But he invites these guys to his own birthday party. Incidentally, in your Bible, Old Testament and New, anytime you find a king or a man of power throwing a banquet, it always ends badly until you get to Revelation 19 where you have the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that's a party. But he throws this massive birthday party and his new wife's daughter. So this is his grandniece and step-grandchild. It's so incestuous and gross. This girl comes in and dances at the party. Meanwhile, we find out that Herod's already heard about Jesus' disciples in this little mission trip. And he's starting to freak out because he's going, why are they talking about this new kingdom that's coming in? I want to be king. Oh, I know. It must be because John the Baptist is back from the dead. And you go, wait, back from the dead? When did that happen? Ah, this is how Mark writes. Now we're going to get the flashback. We find out that Herod has had had John the Baptist imprisoned because his wife Herodias hates him because John the Baptist keeps saying, hey, you're in violation of Leviticus. You can't do this thing, just divorcing people left and right and remarrying them. You're the king. You're supposed to show the righteousness and the nobility of God. This is a deep, egregious offense. And so John the Baptist is in prison in Fortress Machaira, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You can go there today. In fact, you should literally like make plans to go there today. Like in October, we're going to go there. It's an amazing thing. And so I'll tell you this week in preparation for the story of John the Baptist, I got emotional all over again because you can literally be where he was being held and where his life comes to a close in the most vulgar, inglorious, ignominious, undignified way. This young girl comes in and does this super seductive dance for her great uncle, and he's probably very much on strong drink, 
And he is so taken by her dance that he offers her some lavish reward. He even says, up to half my kingdom. That's not what he really means. It's an expression of antiquity. And by the way, he doesn't even have a kingdom to give or the authority to give it. It's just an expression. She doesn't know what to say. So she runs off and asks her mom, Herodias, what do I ask for? And she says, John the Baptist's head. Now, this woman was ready for an answer. She's not the kind of person you want to mess with. And so the girl runs right back in immediately, Mark says, and says, I want John the Baptist's head. And Herod Antipas, the color leaves him, and he freaks out, and it says he's grieved with great sorrow because he liked John, didn't understand everything, but he liked him. He, he, he thought it was fun to listen to, but he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his buddies. We have a tendency to think that world tyrants and rulers are these strong macho guys. No, they're generally sniveling, manipulative cowards of insecurity. He doesn't want to be embarrassed by a teenage girl. Which, by the way, Peter writing this to Mark goes, yeah, man, let me tell you, teenage girls are scary. Got me three times in the temple courts, man. The teenage girls are the worst. No offense. And so he says very succinctly and briefly, go. He sends the executioner. We're not even told what is said, how this goes. We just know that some executioner walks into his cell. Probably not much said. And the last Old Testament prophet in this dark, dirty hole is probably kicked in the back, bent over a stone, and beheaded. That's it. And it's not supposed to go that way. Jesus wants the disciples to understand when you proclaim a kingdom in hostile territory, there will be resistance. There will be opposition. It's not always going to be like Capernaum. And so they bring his head grotesquely on a platter into the banquet and they present it. John the Baptist is dead. And it simply says very briefly, his disciples come and get John's body and they inter him in a tomb. Oh, and that's the end. That's down in the southeast. Meanwhile, back up in the northwest, pick back up with me in Mark chapter 6 in verse 30. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus. Here's the other end of the sandwich. You get the idea that Jesus is still up in the northwest. He's been grieving his first cousin, the, 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 the forerunner, the, the pathfinder, the trailblazer for Messiah. They've treated him just like the prophets of old, and Jesus is grieving. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus, this was so cool. This was so cool. Hey, have you been crying? What's up? And he tells them that John's dead. Like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, John's dead? Hey, you got to fix that. We saw what you did with Jairus' daughter. We know what you did with Gary the demoniac. We've seen what you can do. What do you mean John's dead? can't let that happen. He was a good guy. Bad things don't happen to good guys. And Jesus weeps. Because when you proclaim a kingdom in hostile territory, there's going to be resistance and opposition. And he said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. We're pretty sure we know where this is. This is on the northwest part of the Galilee on a grassy area called Tabga. You can go there today. Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. His fame, his popularity, his influence, his impact continues to increase. And Jesus goes, hey, you, it's really good that you guys did that. But you need a break. You need some leisure. Come away. 
And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So the idea is they kind of put in at the northwest corner. They go away in a boat just to get away, and they come right back in on the northern shore to this place called Tabga. We think the geography is a little bit squirrely. It doesn't matter. They're up in the northern shore. Now, verse 33. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they can't even go out on the boat and be left alone. People are seeing them because the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. You can see it from anywhere around the lake. You can see what's going on. And so people are watching them. They're out on the boat. Oh, here they come back again. And the crowds just flock and they throng to the northern shore. Verse 34, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. <laughs> Here's kind of the whole point of this passage. Remember, Mark is sitting in Rome, writing to Romans who have a Caesar, an emperor, likely Nero by this point. Mark wants them to know, this king is compassionate. This king is kind. This king is caring. Who is Lord? Who is king? Is Jesus really Lord? Is he really king? Jesus is. I love this verse. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, that is Old Testament language. They get that from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, from all Kings, Samuel, and Chronicles. Sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus looks at him and says, nothing's changed. There is no king in Israel, but he has compassion, concern, and care for them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. What things? We don't know. This isn't one of the teaching chapters. We have a big teaching section in chapter 4, another really big teaching section in chapter 13. But until then, it's just action sequence, action sequence, action sequence. He just began to teach them all kinds of stuff about God's plan for their shalom, how the kingdom has come, but it's not what they expect, how this has always been God's plan. And he's got the children of Israel, these Sheep without a shepherd gathered on a hill in the wilderness. Hmm. Keep watching. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Hey, Jesus, let, let's get practical here for a moment. You might not have noticed, but there's no Stuckies anywhere near. The, the, the Starbucks hasn't been invented yet. And uh, it's getting late and there's a lot of people here. We should probably call it a day. We're tired, cranky, and fussy. All we have with us is this stick and these very old, gross sandals. Let's, let's call it, okay? They said to Jesus, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. <laughs> you know this story. It's a familiar story. It is the only sign and wonder, other than the resurrection of Jesus, it is the only one that appears in all four Gospels. Now, that's instructive. That's interesting. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Huh. No, you disciples, you dispense and you nourish them. You care for them. You feed them. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's eight months wages. Come on, Jesus, use your head. Despite all the things that they've seen, they're like, ah. Seriously, eight months, look at us, we got a stick. You want us to go and spend eight months wages to feed these people? Now, what should they have said? We can't. But we have seen that with you, all things are possible. We trust you. What are you gonna do? What do you want us to do? 
They don't say that because their hearts are hardened. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Now, Mark doesn't tell us here, but John tells us that a little boy comes and he has this for a snack. John tells us that the loaves are made out of barley. This is poor people food. John's intentionally connecting this to 2 Kings 4, where Elisha, the prophet, takes 20 loaves and feeds 100 people. But Jesus is going to take five loaves and two fish. And we're going to find out later there's 5,000 men, males, which means there's at least another 15,000 or so women and children. So 20,000 people are going to get fed here. Jesus is going to do far more with far less. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. This idea of groups is companies. It would have looked very much like a military installation. Orderly groups of 50 and 100. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that because he's sitting in Rome writing the Romans. He would have said, the ancient Jewish prayer of bread. Oh, Lord God, ruler of the universe who brings about bread from the ground. Oh, Lord our God, ruler of the universe who brings about bread from the ground. <laughs> and then he does it. Do you see? Oh, Lord our God, ruler of the universe who brings about bread from the ground. And he's about to do precisely that. It's a very strong declaration of deity and divinity, but not just that. This is how humanity was always supposed to have been, don't you see? This is what Adam was created to do, to be the vice regent of the world, to bring about prosperity, to cultivate the ground and to be productive and to produce above and beyond. Yes, he's God, but he's also the last Adam, a picture of full, complete, total humanity in the image of God. <laughs> It's not just that Jesus is awesome. Jesus is. But Jesus is man, completely, more fully than we will ever understand until we become like him because we shall see him as he is. He broke it. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided, he divided the two fish among them all. He supplies all of their need and then some. It's an amazing story. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now, any Jewish ear hears this and goes, ah, that's the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the number of administration. There's a new king and a better kingdom. And it's abundance. And there's plenty. And there is no more scarcity. And this king is the one that can bring it. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 males. So there's a whole lot more. Now, if you're sitting up in the northern shore of the Galilee, you're 20,000 strong, 5,000 of which at least are males, and this captain, this champion, this king can do things like this, and you've heard the stories of raising people from the dead. You've heard the, people of, the stories of casting out demons, of, of healing people, of now feeding thousands. He's your guy. Now, John tells us that they try to rush him right then and there and make him king. Jesus will not have it. He will not be rushed. He will not have the crown before he gets the cross. So watch what happens now. And immediately, verse 45, 
Mark pivots very quickly. And immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, we lose some of the urgency. He made them. He's like shoving them in the back. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. Now, now, now. Go, go, go. Because there's these tens of thousands of people who are wanting to do something with him that is not his time. And so he forces them rapidly, hurriedly, hastily. Get in the boat. He made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. Wait, now we're going to crisscross back and forth. He keeps wanting to go to the northwestern shore over to the eastern shore. He wants them to go to the other side to Bethsaida. That's on the eastern side, but up in the north part. So it's in the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. While he dismissed the crowd, he's trying to diffuse and to distribute the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. We think that's probably Mount Arbel up in the northwest corner. He sends his disciples off in a boat, but he's got to get alone. He's got to be by himself. He's got to seek solace with the Father. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. I want to remind you, Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, and if you go up on the hills, you can see the entire lake, and you can see every single boat, particularly if they have a light. So what we find out is that Jesus is up praying for them just like he had been when he called them to be his disciples and he's watching them down on the water. He's watching them. It's such a comfort. He's watching his disciples. Do you know that? He's, he's not just up there bored. He lives to make intercession. He's watching his disciples. After he'd taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. The winds come up off from the east over the Golan Heights and they sweep across the water and they're trying to row from west to east but the wind's pushing against them and they're going nowhere fast and they're getting exhausted. They were making headway painfully for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night, this is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they've been at it all night and they're getting nowhere and they're exhausted and it's dark and there's no light anywhere. And they can see the stars above them and they can hear the waves trampling all around them. At the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now that ought to be a tip-off. I mean, your rabbi can do some pretty cool things. He can make people well. He can anoint them with oil. Wow, he made Jairus' daughter alive again. He stopped the woman's bleeding of 12 years, cast out the demons. But walk across the sea on the waves, that's a whole other category. They don't have a category for this, and that's the problem. They have no category for this. this the text says something very, very strange. He meant to pass them by. Now, we read that. You might have a tendency to go, here comes Jesus going, I mean, the winds are strong, and he's, they're not going to notice. The winds are, and he's just going to pass them by. Stick with me for one moment. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. I mean, they're exhausted. They're, they haven't even gotten a chance to rest from their mission trip. And then all the stuff with the, the people on the, on the seashore and the feeding of those thousands of people. Now they've been rowing all night. They're totally exhausted. It's dark of dark. It's night of night. And then here this thing comes. It's a phantasma is the Greek. They, they don't have a category. It's not that Jewish people back then had a fully orbed philosophy of ghosts. They didn't. They just, it's some aperture. It's some apparition, some spirit. They don't know. They're just terrified. They cried out for they all saw him. They all did and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, 
Take courage. Be encouraged. In other words, receive encouragement. It is I. In the Greek, it is ego eimi. The same thing he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Take courage. I am. Fear not. I know you believe. I'm here to help your unbelief. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased immediately. And they were utterly astounded. Now, the most shocking verse of this entire chapter is what follows. They were utterly astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. Like, what? No! you you got to be kidding me. Like, surely it's going to say they were utterly astounded because people don't walk on water. They were utterly astounded because they didn't, they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What's going on? It's hard for us. You and I are 21st century Gentiles by and large. We don't understand. There are these people in Israel sitting in the wilderness on a hillside and they receive bread. Now you and I don't hear the flickers and the bells don't go off, but it did for them. They're thinking this is Moses. Moses, 1,500 years ago in the Exodus, set the people of Israel down in the wilderness and he called down manna from heaven and he fed the people. And then Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 18, 15, behold, there will come a prophet after me. You must listen to him and follow him. And they're thinking, it's taken 1,500 years and it's Moses. He's gonna feed us bread. And Moses parted the sea, but this guy just walked on it. It's Moses. Jesus says, no, you, you, you don't understand. I, I, I'm not here merely as another Moses. He intended to pass them by. What's going on? This is a theophany. This is a demonstration of the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of God. It's the exact same language that we have of Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. But here's what I'll do. I will put you in the cliff of the rock and I will cover you with my hand, and then I will pass by you. And I'll go, whoop, that's all you get right there. That's it. You can see the back of my robes. And I will proclaim to you my excellencies, the Lord, the Lord, mighty in his power, slow to wrath. I will pass by you. But even more ancient than that, we have the book of Job, chapter 9, which you've already heard read this morning. Who is it that tramples on the waves that passes by, but people cannot believe because their hearts are hardened? Oh, Jesus. He's doing a callback from 2,000 years before his own incarnation to the book of Job. I am. I am Yahweh that tramples on the waves and that passes by you. But their eyes were too low. Their hearts were hardened. Is Jesus really the hope of the world? They're still thinking, surely, just like Moses called down the waves upon the Egyptians and eradicated Pharaoh and all of his invading armies and all of his oppression, surely this Moses will eradicate the Romans. But as you come to find out, Jesus loves Romans. He's crazy about them. Who is Lord? Jesus is. Is he the hope of the world? Jesus is. Is he awesome? Jesus is. Is he God? Jesus is. Is he the man of men? Jesus is. So what do we take away 
from this longest day. But Peter wants us to understand the enormity of this Jesus and the ministry that he came to inaugurate. As a reminder, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So what do we take away? Very portably, very quickly, very succinctly. Number one goes like this. Jesus is the suffering servant. Now, we said that at the beginning of our series on Mark. Here's why you need to know that. Jesus is. He is the suffering servant. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is the king, the rightful king. In the Gospel of Luke, he is the perfect man for the Gentiles. In the Gospel of John, he is God. But Mark wants you to know he is the suffering servant. At least five or six times in Mark's Gospel, Jesus goes away to pray to be alone, to anguish and to sorrow of what must be done for these sheep without a shepherd. Why does that matter? Why do you care? Why did the people of Rome care 2,000 years ago? Because Isaiah foretold that the suffering servant would come. But they couldn't understand at that time that there were two advents. All they saw was there was one coming of Messiah and he would be a conquering king. But then Jesus comes and says, surprise, it's not what you expected. There will actually be two Advents. And I am here at first Advent to be the suffering servant that you want to so quickly ignore, but it's all over Isaiah. And I have to be the suffering servant so that you don't get conquered. If I just come back as conquering king, you have no hope. I'll destroy you. But I love you so much that I'm going to beseech the Father on your behalf and I will become all of the filth that you are, all the faithlessness that you carry. I am the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Oh, he will come back as a conquering king, but there's good news. There's a gospel. He's willing to suffer for your sake and for mine because he's compassionate and he's caring. Do you remember the hillside? Mark tells us in his gospel and he seats them on the green grass. No other gospel writer tells us that. Why, do they te- why does Mark tell us that? Because he wants us to know that it's spring. It's the time of preparation for the Passover. But not only that, Jesus says they are like sheep without a shepherd. Where else do we hear about green grass? Oh, this is Jesus' way of saying, I am Psalm 23. I lead you beside green pastures. It's me. All of the Old Testament is preparing you and pointing to, it's me. I am the suffering servant who wants to be your servant and your savior. Number two, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Let me put it another way. Jesus doesn't just meet our expectation. He is the expectation of every human heart. He is new life itself and life abundant. Jesus gives life because he is life. What he does with the bread and with the walking on the waves is a demonstration of this new creation that is breaking in because this king has literally brought in this kingdom. This is what human life was supposed to be. Don't you have some flicker? Don't you have some like, duty on? I wish I could do that. You will. You can. That is his plan created in his image, finally one day freed utterly from sin This new creation has dawned. For me to eat, however, something has to die. Just like with bread, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the earth and is crushed, it cannot become bread. This Jesus says, I am enough. I sustain. But for me to sustain you, I have to die. This Jesus is. He is enough. 
It's more than enough for all that I need and all that I, all that I desire. Number three, Jesus is God come to earth. He is the suffering servant. He is enough, but he is God come to earth. Make no mistake. For thousands and thousands of years, humans have wondered, what is God like? What's he like? And they've tried to make up all these different stories from different pantheons of different mythologies. What's God actually like? Jesus! That's what he's like. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus exegetes the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. The way he talks, how he cares, how he feels about people, the things that he does, that's what God is like. He's not a superhero. He is God. He didn't come to change people's circumstances or to rescue them from their problems or their consequences. Oh, way more than that. He came to establish his eternal kingdom and by grace to invite a bunch of rebellious people who don't deserve it. Why? Because he loves us and the shepherd loves his sheep. These disciples, in Peter's own telling to Mark, they didn't get it. Their hearts were hardened, just like the gospel of Job, or the book of Job says 2,000 years earlier. Their hearts were hardened because they were thinking only of their immediate circumstance. But this Jesus has brought forth the kingdom of God because he is God. So what do you and I do with all of that in 2022? Final point. Here's your instruction. Here's the imperative it's a three-parter. It goes like this. Understand, agree, and trust. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Lord's anointed. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world by becoming sin for any and all that believe. Do you understand that's what he did? That's what he came to do, and he did it. Do you understand the content of our confession about Christ? Number two, agree. Do you agree with it? Rationally confirm that this is actually true and that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is not an option. He is the way, full stop. Do you agree with that? Do you understand that? Do you agree with that? Well, then number three, Trust. Trust. Place your whole life and all its weight on that understanding and on that agreement and actually live like it's true. That's faith. This is what Peter in this longest day wants you and I to take away. Look at him. Jesus is. Understand it. Agree with it. And then trust it. That's faith. Jesus is. But, but wait, the chapter's not over. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 53 to the end. When they had crossed over, they had tried to get to Bethsaida, the text tells us, but just so happens they got blown further south. Huh, just so happens. They're down on the southern part, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they come to, well, Gennesaret, over on the east side. They'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. You remember Gerasenes, Gennesaret, Gergesenes, however that's pronounced, a lot of different texts, a lot of different manuscripts. You remember what happened? Jesus comes and he encounters crazy Gary cutting himself, this ghoulish grotesque living in the tombs around the pigs, hurting himself. Jesus casts out the legion of demons into the pigs. They're drowned in the abyss. All the people beg Jesus to leave. Get away from here. You're scaring us. But not Gary. Gary wants to come with Jesus. Jesus says, no. I want you to go tell your story. Watch what happens. 
And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. This kills me. I love this. And whenever he, wherever he came in, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch him, the, even the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made well. Gosh, where have we seen that before? Just touching this Jesus. How did all of these people change from wanting him to leave? These are Gentiles in the Decapolis, the 10 cities, which is now actually 18 cities. One guy told his story. Tell me about this Jesus. Here's what I can tell you. I was oppressed, afflicted, possessed, whatever it was, by legion of unclean spirits. And he looked at me. And he touched me. And he loved me. And I put on khakis. And I am well. And I am whole. Gary, are you telling me that Jesus is the hope of the world? That... that Jewish rabbi from the other side. And Gary goes, oh, Jesus is. And the people said, we've never heard anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this. And the entire Gentile, godless, pagan region comes to find Jesus. When one guy tells his story, Jesus is made much of. Who do you say that he is? The more we examine the object of our faith, this Jesus, the more our faith grows. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for this Jesus. Thank you for this longest day where we get to see so much of his life demonstrating that he is the suffering servant, that he is enough, that he is God come to earth. He's the man. So Father, if there's anyone here this morning who as of yet is not persuaded, would you persuade them? Would you lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus that they would understand, that they would agree, that they would trust? Would you help their unbelief that they would step out of death into life? May their hearts not be hardened because this morning in your word you have passed by and shown us your glory. For the rest of us, Father, who our eyes have fallen that we want the goodies instead of the giver, would you soften our hearts to think not of Jesus as a Moses or a prophet or a blesser or a giver, but as God, as the suffering servant who is enough. Would you expand our capacity to comprehend the gospel? We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.